listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah. Welcome to Belaboured episode 171. Today, we're going to talk about the work of orchestra musicians and why the union of musicians at the Chicago Symphony Orchestra is on strike. But first, the news. Last week, nurses across New York City voted on what would be a groundbreaking strike in multiple hospitals, New York Presbyterian, Montefiore, Mount Sinai, Mount Sinai West, and St. Luke's, voted by 97% to authorize a strike, 8,533 yes votes to 230 no. I spoke with Anthony Ciampa, an RN at New York Presbyterian and vice president of the New York State Nurses Association, about the issues at the hospitals and why we might see such a citywide strike. This would be a pretty unprecedented strike if it comes off. Tell me what the issues are across the different hospitals that brought everybody together like this. Right. Well, first and foremost, the primary issue uh, is our um, staffing or, or lack mm-hmm. thereof. Uh, prior to right. negotiations, we, we sent out bargaining unit surveys to all our members, and the overwhelming response is our, our top priority needs to be safe staffing, and uh, we presented that in the form of staffing ratios. And the idea behind that is that there's a maximum number of patients that a nurse can safely, safely take care of. We need to establish that number and be able to staff up, you know, as needed based on equipment, technology, acuity, skill uh, mix, you know, whether or not all the nurses on a unit are brand new or not. Right now, there there is no minimum, which makes no sense. For example, the, the example I like to give is daycare. In daycare mm-hmm. in New York State, there's minimum numbers of patients that a daycare worker can take care of with a child. If that child gets sick and goes into the emergency room, there is no more minimum, and that makes no sense. So when we're talking about this many hospitals at the same time, tell us a little bit about how that works, how you get to a point where you have this many different hospitals. Obviously, the issues being the same is is the industry-wide problem, but um, what sort of brought it to this point at this many hospitals simultaneously? What we do is we collect data. You know, anytime a registered nurse gets an assignment that they deem is unsafe or, or has the potential to be unsafe, uh, we file something called a protest of assignment. And a protest of assignment is uh, basically a notice that we give to the employer uh, saying that we will accept this assignment because we understand that the, it, it would be worse not to, but that we're, we're accepting it on the protest because it's unsafe or has the potential to be unsafe. Across the city hospitals last year, we had over 10,000 protests of assignments. And, and those are from the nurses that are brave enough to file a form and send mm-hmm. it to management officially. So that coupled with the bargaining surveys from all the registered nurses and the executive committee members that represent, who are the nurses, by the way, nur- right. nurses are negotiating this contract. We're all frontline right. caregivers at the table. And, and it's based also on our own personal experiences on the unit, myself included, that there needs to be some type of safety measure, you know, because we're taking care of human beings and, and we can't afford to make you know, one mistake when it comes to somebody's, you know, grandmother, somebody's child, an infant, a relative, a sister, a brother, we need to have these uh, safety measures in place. So you are in bargaining. We're talking on a break from bargaining right now, right? Yes. Yeah, we just took a break from negotiations. I think we're up to our 25th negotiation session, and we hadn't gotten any significant proposal from management 
Uh, they said mm -hmm. that their proposals are contingent on us withdrawing our staffing ratios proposal, and they really dug mm -hmm. their heels in saying that there's no way that they would agree to anything to do with staffing ratios. Today's the first time that they put in an economic proposal, and they, they offered us uh, some um, wage increases, which we yeah. haven't been fighting for. You know, we've been right. fighting for staffing ratios, and, and we said that they could offer us double or triple the money that they're putting on the right. table. It still wouldn't solve the, the crisis that we're facing with staffing, yeah. and that's the issue that we're willing to strike over. Our goal here is not to, to strike. Our goal right. here is to get a contract and put in safety standards for our patients. But we're willing to do whatever it takes to make sure that this doesn't happen because we believe that chronically the consequences are far outweigh uh, those of, 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 of a strike in, in terms of long-term long deterioration of care. We, we can do better and we should do better because we all deserve better. Why are they so resistant to the staffing ratio question? Well, that's simple. I mean, they, they want to be in control. Unfortunately, it all boils down to the same thing. It's uh, profits. And I, I believe that, you know, management is putting profits before patients and our struggle is to put patients before profits. CEOs make exorbitant salaries in the millions. I mean, as we look across the table, there's millions of dollars worth of salary sitting across the table. And we figured that, you know, their salaries could easily equate to 200, between 200 and 300 registered nurses. Wow. Yeah, that's uh, when you put it like that. What else should people know about this? They should know that we're all in this fight together. You know, as registered nurses, we can advocate for patients at the bedside. But as a union, we can advocate for patients within a hospital and within our communities. And that's what it's all about. Our communities are behind us. The community boards have signed on. The New York City Council has signed on. We have a lot of different uh, legislators and community groups that are with us because it's, it's for the betterment of all of us as the people within a society. So I believe that this fight, we're all in it together. And I, I feel, you know, we feel that New Yorkers are getting shortchanged in terms of quality of care. And uh, for a nation this wealthy, there's absolutely no reason for us to, to have this uh, shortage and that this is a staffing crisis and, and a cry for help. That was Anthony Ciampa, a nurse with NISNA. We will keep you updated on the potential strike. Well, Congress has kicked off another legislative session with a brand new attempt by Republicans to take progressive policy ideas and turn them into things that are both wasteful and ineffective. Republican lawmakers are tackling child care with a proposed slush fund for businesses, and they're pushing plans for a paid family leave through a variety of measures that are basically too little too late. Trump's budget proposal includes a child care program that centers on a one-time boost of $1 million that's designed to supposedly incentivize businesses to do what they have so far failed to do for many decades, help parents finance child care that they need in order to maintain employment outside the home. Under this half-baked Ivanka Care program, the funds would only go toward underserved families and would run on a competitive grant program for which states compete by allowing deregulation of the child care sector. What could go wrong? By contrast, Elizabeth Warren has proposed a radically different approach with a sustained investment of some $70 billion per year to be covered by a new ultra-millionaire tax on the extremely wealthy. It would cover the full cost of child care for families with incomes of up to 200% of poverty, and it would offset the crushing cost of child care while providing a massive investment in early childhood development and all of the good things, such as jobs and educational achievement, that follow from that. 
Paid family leave has emerged again on the Hill as well, with dueling proposals for programs that allow workers to take time off to tend to personal family care matters, medical needs, and childbirth. Trump's budget offers a relatively paltry benefit that simply incorporates paid leave into existing state unemployment insurance schemes, which are underfunded as they are. And since it lasts just six weeks and provides an unsustainable, highly variable level of income reimbursement, progressives say it's just too little at the wrong time. Republicans are pushing a separate proposal that would undercut Social Security funding by financing paid leave at the expense of retirement security. Sounds like a plan. What families really need is stable income support that enables them to be resilient when their home lives clash with their work lives. So I spoke to Deborah Ness of the National Partnership for Women and Families to talk about what the different proposals mean, what they don't offer, and what to look for instead. On the paid leave front, this is a, a slight rework of a proposal he he made before, and it falls way short of what uh, families uh, need. First of all, it is a proposal that would only cover people for parental leave and the birth or adoption of a new child. And that means that you would be leaving out at least 75% of the people who currently take unpaid family and medical leave because people use family and medical leave not just for the birth of a new child but also to take care of themselves if they have a serious illness or another loved one like a spouse or a parent. And so none of those reasons would be covered under uh, Trump's proposal. And in fact, if you think back to the State of the Union speech where he pointed out that beautiful little girl who had overcome um, cancer, uh, this proposal wouldn't have helped her parents because she wasn't newborn. Uh, She wasn't a, a new child. So... It's for a very limited purpose, and it is um, also only for six weeks. And um, there's broad agreement that to be meaningful, a proposal would have to be at least 12 weeks long and cover all the same kinds of needs that you would cover um, under family and medical leave, so self-care and other family members and um, things like military deployment, which are currently covered under uh, FMLA. All of what he's proposing comes in the context of an overall budget where he's making huge slashes in the funding for the programs that families and children uh, depend on. So it's almost like he's pitting human needs against each other. And you you see that very clearly um, if you want to talk about his child care proposal. It's even more vivid there because he is talking about providing a one-time billion-dollar grant to states, but only if they agree to roll back protections for health and safety requirements in child care centers. So that's, you know, number one. And and number two, he's providing this one-time funding, but he's not doing anything to add to the main way we need to fund the child care program in this country, which is the Child Care and Development Block Grant, often called CCDBG. Um, That is where most of the funds for child care that support lower income families comes from. And it is flat funded in this budget. 
And we know that today, one out of every six children who's eligible for assistance under that fund can't get it because there isn't enough money to cover them. And you need way more than $1 billion. Presumably, people will continue to have children after that $1 billion has run out. So <laughs> that, Well, exactly. And, um, and what are we saying to parents? You know, we're going to give you this one-time one grant, and at the same time, we're going to slash Medicaid and take away Head Start funds and uh, take away food stamps or SNAP, take away uh, funds for affordable housing. So it's really phony and deceptive, and this set of trade-offs, when you think about it, is very cruel and very consistent with an administration that is engaging in such horrendous behavior as family separation policies at the border. In complicated topics in strike journalism this week, SEIU staffers represented by the Office of Professional Employees International Union Local 2 voted by 92 percent to authorize a potential strike against the union where they work. SEIU, of course, has taken plenty of workers out on strike over the past few years, and union employees across the movement are known for working long hours, especially when a strike is on, for mediocre to sometimes meager pay. This isn't uncommon, of course, for mission-driven work. It's hardly unique to unions, though plenty of writers before me have pointed out the ironies in labor staffers facing some of the same conditions they fight against for members. Still others have argued that union staffers shouldn't have unions because it contradicts the mission, a statement I should say that I deeply disagree with, just as I would deeply disagree that labor journalists like me shouldn't have a union. The last time I had a job, I was involved in unionizing it, and if I ever have a full-time job again, I will do my best to ensure it is a union job. In any case, the issues at stake, according to an article by Dave Jameson at the HuffPost, speaking of labor journalists who have unions, include outsourcing and a two-tier system of layoff protections. No one on this bargaining committee joined SEIU to be in a fight with SEIU. We did it because we believe in these programs, said David Hoskins, a researcher at SEIU and also a shop steward, to HuffPost. The truth is what they preach publicly is very different from what they do internally, end quote. The size of the staff union's bargaining unit has shrunk considerably over the past several years, and the union has said that that is due to SEIU contracting with outside firms, notably to big-time public relations firm Berlin Rosen, which works for a lot of unions and also left-leaning politicians like New York Mayor Bill de Blasio, which some have pointed to as a potential conflict of interest. OPEIU wants the union to commit to bringing work back inside. An SEIU spokesperson told HuffPost, SEIU has been strongly committed to reaching a negotiated settlement that allows our union to meet the daunting challenges that SEIU members are up against and provides a workplace that is aligned with our values. We will, of course, keep you posted on developments here. It would be a huge step for union staffers to actually go on strike, but the willingness to take a strike vote signals a high degree of frustration in bargaining, which has been going on for a while. Their contract expired last August. When it comes to the future of work, the debate usually centers around either welcoming the glory of technological convenience for all or bracing for existential social upheaval as robots take over society. For working women, it's an even more mixed picture of the future, bringing both more risk and more potential, according to a new report by the Institute for Women's Policy Research. The Institute reports that women stand to lose a lot more than men amidst the impending wave of artificial intelligence, technology, and automation. 
While all workers face some sort of disruption, according to one estimate, about half of all jobs will be rendered redundant by automation in the near future, the Institute's data analysis found that job losses will be up to 18.1 million for women in the 20 largest occupations for women, compared to 17.4 million in the 20 most common occupations for men. Moreover, women outnumber men in the occupations at the highest risk of automation by about 6 million. That's primarily because of the way job sectors are structured. Women tend to be clustered in the more vulnerable occupations, which could be outsourced to machines and technology. And the concentration of women at the high and low ends of the income spectrum in these vulnerable industries means that aggregate income losses will hit women harder than men. To parse what this all means, I spoke with Ariana Hegewish of the Institute for Women's Policy Research about the future of women and work in the face of automation. Because the labor market in the U.S. is so gender segregated, if you do not look at gender, you are going to make bad policy and you are going to miss key developments. For women, this means, A, they are in different occupations from men, in a lot of cases, and B, they have less time to do something about it because they are more likely to do care work. So I think that's the, the framing start, and I think it's very important because we do not want to say that there aren't a lot of men who may be threatened by automation, but the effects can be different for women and men. So starting from that, the threats are slightly different. I mean, it's partly because now women are more likely to work in the occupations with the highest threat level. But as you said, they also outnumber men in the occupations with the lowest threat level. And it's a threat, you know, um, that's important. It's technological threat that something may happen that messes up those occupations or changes fundamentally the work that is being done in the occupations doesn't say nobody quite knows how soon this will happen or what the impact will be on jobs, even on number of jobs. But the general consensus is over the next 10 years or so, 10, 15 years, there will be quite a lot of change. I think also the idea here is that these changes are to some degree unavoidable. And so it's more of an issue of just like getting ahead of the problem. Absolutely. But I think what we wanted to say is, yes, women are also more likely to be in the safer jobs. But just because a job cannot be or is unlikely to be replaced by technology um, doesn't mean that it's a good job. And so if you take something like post-secondary education, which is a job everybody suggests will expand, it has a very high incident of adjunct and non-permanent kind of really gig employment. It also includes good jobs, you know, teaching jobs, nursing jobs, therapists, all those where, you know, they, they often tend to be reasonably good jobs, even if they don't pay as well as some of the male-dominated professions. And they have typically those jobs tend to come with benefits. But... There are also quite a few not-so-good jobs in that sector. And certainly the care jobs, I mean, the other issue is that we would say the care jobs, such as child care, you know, this 
presents opportunities to make these jobs better. That was Ariana Hagevich of the Institute for Women's Policy Research. How do you land a top seat in a world-class symphony orchestra? You might think it's practice, practice, practice. But for real-life professional musicians, even at the top levels of virtuosity, the path to success is often about work, work, work. And some musicians in Chicago's symphony orchestra are saying that the work just doesn't pay. They are on strike this week, picketing in front of their concert hall. All performances suspended after their union, the Chicago Federation of Musicians, reached an impasse in contract negotiations. The action follows a strike by the Chicago Lyric Opera last fall. And as concerts remain on hold and the orchestra falls silent, their work stoppage signals a growing tension in the world of the arts. Between the industry of culture and creativity on one hand and the rights and protections of labor in everyday life. We talked to Roger Krasinger, a bassist with the orchestra and union representative, about why they're on strike and how their working conditions matter to their mission as artists. We went on strike on Monday and our main issues are, as in most of these kind of things, we're striking because we can't get a a good deal on wages and our pension plan. The pension is really the biggest issue here. We, We have a defined benefit pension that the orchestra's had for about 50 years, and they are very, very hot to switch us into a defined contribution, which would be devastating to the members of this organization. So we've been striking on the picket lines from 8 to 8 every day, and uh, we're going to stay out there until this thing gets resolved. And so your performances are all suspended for this week, is that right? Yeah, that's correct. It took them a while, but they did, I think, eventually (laughs) officially cancel the performances for this week. So I I don't know how they're doing it, whether it's just a week at a time or, I mean, that's probably how they're doing it. But uh, one of the things that we have going for us uh, that's just wonderful is that we have the full support of our stagehands union, the National International uh, Association of Theater Workers, Stage Technicians. So they're not crossing our picket line, which means that the building is essentially shut down for all performances. That's been a great thing for us. Have you been hearing anything from audience members or um, fans of the the symphony orchestra? What have you been hearing from the broader community about your, your action? I was a little pleasantly surprised the the outpouring of support from our audience members from members of the governing board and the trustees of the CSO uh, has been so positive and from uh, other arts organizations in Chicago from other unions huge support and uh, there just seems to be a feeling that you know this this group is such a irreplaceable jewel of culture in this city that they're really rallying and perhaps the most Im- <laughs> for me the most important support came from our music director maestro ricardo muti who did something that most music directors don't do in situations like this he immediately jumped in and voiced his support for the musicians that was huge and that's the kind of support that will resonate all over the country and all over the world because he is an internationally recognized maestro. 
A few months ago, the Chicago Lyric Opera also went on strike. Um, are these two mm-hmm. related? Uh, same union, I imagine. Um, is there a pattern here? Do you guys have uh, similar contracts or the same kind of bargaining system? Yeah, I'm um, yes to all of the above. It's the same union. They bargained before us, and uh, they did go on strike for a little while. Uh, they came back from the strike and settled an agreement that probably wasn't agreeable to everybody in the unit, but they did they did get the matter resolved and got back to work. So tell us a little bit more about sort of what you do. For most people, we don't really understand what the life of somebody who's a musician at this high a level is, is like. I, I kind of have to start at the beginning, which is, you know, all of us started playing instruments when we were young kids. Some of the fiddle players started when they were, you know, four years old or something. But everybody has been working and practicing to get a position like this for their entire lives before they get here. So, the, you know, the amount of preparation that goes into winning an audition for a group like this is almost incalculable. It's thousands and thousands and thousands of hours of, of practice and work before you even take an audition. So to get into a group like this is a is a gigantic accomplishment. It's like going to the Olympics and winning a gold medal. And then once you're here, the group itself is, is very busy. We play more concerts per season than any other orchestra in the United States. It's a very hardworking job, and we're all happy to do it, but it it's hard work. The other thing is that we all have to... You can't just show up and just sort of hack through the material that's in front of you. You have to you have to be prepared for every note before you show up to the first rehearsal. You know, and it's a different concert every week, so you're responsible for a vast amount of material, and that requires a vast amount of private practicing. When we do our summer season up at uh, Ravinia, which is a, a concert venue up in Highland Park, it's sort of our summer summer home. The schedule for that is six weeks of three different shows a week. So that gives you some idea of the pressure that's on us to perform. Talk about this in terms of you have sort of your performance time, you have scheduled rehearsal time, and then you have the the practice time that you have to do on your own that is not, I presume, paid for in your contract. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It's just expected. You know, it's a, it's a, Big commitment every day. And, you know, then in the midst of all that, we've got wives and children and, I mean, <laughs> I should say spouses and children and all all those other responsibilities that everybody else has. And uh, it can be a very, very busy life. Plus the fact that, you know, we work nights. The concerts right. are always at night. So we're working when everybody else is home with their families. Yeah. So how many nights of performances do you have a year? You said you're doing more performances than any other orchestra, but like, what does that actually translate to? I think the number's coming out to about 160. And the normal schedule for us on a weekly basis is uh, we have four concerts, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and then a repeat concert the following week on Tuesday. That's a normal, kind of a normal work week. It gets jumbled up 
from time to time, and we have extra concerts for uh, things like films and special guests that come in. So, uh, but that's the basic setup for work. Do the musicians also have teaching duties or uh, appointments at conservatories or any other um, activities that you do outside of your basic day-to-day performance work? Yes, and the vast majority of our membership uh, teach. I teach at DePaul University, for instance, Mm -hmm. and I've got a studio of five bass players that I teach every week and classes and things like that. So that makes for an additional bunch of slots on the schedule. What I say about that is, you know, beyond the the idea that, you know, it adds to the work hours, what that really means is that the musicians of this orchestra and an orchestra is the place that they take in a society is that we're, we're in the fabric of society. We're not just in the concert hall playing concerts every week. You know, we, we teach the children, we teach in the schools, we teach uh, at the universities, and uh, we become a part of the, the cultural fabric and the educational fabric of, of, of this city. And a lot of our support comes from people who, you know, oh, my, my kid studied with you or I studied with you or, you know, it's, it's a very, and it's multi-generational in a, uh, you know, in a city like Chicago where the orchestra is, I think, 126 or 127 years old now. It's very deeply embedded in the, in the cultural life of the city. It's essential to it. Many people might be surprised to hear that orchestral musicians like you are you know even just you know session musicians and others even uh, you know basic a lot of club musicians they're part of established unions can you explain a little bit about the history of organized labor within music and among performers like you um, and and how it got to be this way yeah that's that's a great question in the case of symphony orchestras we, well, we, the people, my predecessors, back in the 50s and 60s, uh, who were playing for major orchestras, became aware of the fact that they just weren't being compensated fairly, and in many cases, they weren't being represented fairly by their uh, local unions, or the national union, even. And there was a big upheaval in uh, the mid-60s, where the orchestra players went to their local unions and said, we want to collectively bargain. We want to, we want to be recognized as a bargaining unit and we want to, uh, we want to have legal representation and we want to be able to negotiate the terms of our contract. Uh, because before that, usually the, the executive of a given orchestra would get together with the president of the local and, you know, over a few drinks, at lunchtime just hammer out a one-page contract agreement and you know it was many times pretty shady so to get those rights to do what we do now people really had to fight and i know in chicago the orchestra members who were instrumental in trying to make this change they were all fired by the management and eventually got their jobs back but that's how that's how distasteful this was to the managers. And eventually through a couple of judicial decisions, we were allowed to organize and collectively bargain for ourselves with the help of the union. So it took a long time, but they finally came around 
to the setup that we have now. And it's it's been very effective for us. And the other thing about that is that symphony orchestras are very uh, unique in the music world because they're, they're a place where somebody tends, especially a place like the Chicago Symphony, where people tend to, if they get in the orchestra, they stay here for a very, very long time, 30, 40, sometimes even 50 years. So there's a, it's, it's more like a family that you join because there's nowhere else to go from here for most musicians. This is the best, best job you could possibly have. So when we're fighting for benefits, it's this idea that somebody's going to be spending their entire, devoting their entire life to this organization. And, you know, so our needs are different because we're in this for the long haul. Is that unique to Chicago, or is it pretty much this way for a lot of city uh, symphony orchestras and, and you know, other, other types of orchestras? No, this is, this is generally the, the uh, way that things are done now with all of the major symphony orchestras all over the country. And, uh, you know, we're very fortunate here in Chicago. We have a very strong union. Chicago itself is a very strong union city. So we've had we've had good support in that area. I know that there are other orchestras in other parts of the country where unionism isn't that strong, and they have a little harder time uh, getting the things that they need. But we're very fortunate to have a setup like this in Chicago with great representation, strength. Generally speaking, in, in performance, just in this general field, um, is, is being unionized fairly rare? Because um, we, we are used to thinking of musicians as being gig-to-gig workers, but perhaps, you know, in, in classical music or certain sectors, it is quite frequent that it's this way. It's quite common in symphony orchestras. It's common with theater musicians, the, the people who play Broadway shows and stuff like that. It's, it's common in opera companies. And then when you get into the, you know, other genres of music, it becomes maybe a little less common in the jazz world. I think if you're playing uh, concert venues and what I would call more high-profile engagements, there are some, I would say quite a few people who are filing union contracts and doing, that, doing it that way. And also a lot of band leaders who do wedding bands and things like that, they, a lot of those or most of those guys file union contracts as well. It's the musicians who are sort of unaffiliated who usually don't file union contracts, you know, for somebody who's playing in a jazz club or uh, somebody who's got a rock band and they're playing in a bar on a particular night. Those are the people that are you know they're a little harder to pin down union wise and a lot of attempts have been made to do that they've had some success with it but it's harder when you're moving around all the time i know when i spoke with the folks from the the lyric opera they were saying that there had been a lot of pressure to sort of run the opera more like a business and i'm wondering if you're seeing that if things have changed in the orchestra over the time that you've been there and the way that the you know the management wants to run it the structure of the management of symphony orchestras goes like this. You have a board of trustees who consist of usually the highest donors to the uh, organization. And then there are sub 
designations beneath that. There's a governing board under that that consists of many, many people. And these are all uh, carved out based on the amount of donations of the patrons. But the people at the top of that food chain typically have become people from corporations. Years and years and years ago, it was much more based on family wealth that would be you know, bequeathed, uh, bequests made to the symphony orchestra for philanthropic purposes, people who had been fans and lovers of the orchestra for years and years. But by and large, uh, corporations have come into the picture as the main donors to the orchestra. And with that, I think we've had kind of a change in the attitude of the, of the boards. They come into this and they look at it. They look at this not-for-profit that uh, may have some uh, features that they did not like in, in their businesses when they were running them. Like, for instance, if you have somebody who ran a company for, you know, 20 years and was successful in driving the unions out of their company and switching all of their defined benefit pensions to 401ks, when they start donating to the orchestra, they may look at the way we do things and think that this isn't a good business model and start trying to affect changes that would take care of some of those things. So it's kind of a different landscape in that regard. And it's too bad because I, we have needs in our working conditions that are just different from, you know, we're very specialized workers, extremely specialized. We can't be easily replaced. And, uh, we're not a corporation. We're a trust. They've been given the responsibility to uh, nurture and support uh, this arts institution so that the musicians who make the art, present the art, can live a life where they can do that. Yeah. I mean, we've seen over the years, really, I think over my lifetime, cutbacks to arts funding, sort of arguments that it's not worth funding, certainly public funding for the arts in a lot of places, down to basically nothing. So I'm wondering if you feel also that there's been sort of more pressure on you to take concessions because, you know, you you love doing this work, so you should keep, you know, doing it even if you're going to get paid less or have a worse, you know, pension system or whatever. That love and dedication to this work that you do can get mobilized against you. We hear this complaint quite frequently. You know, you guys should just do this for the love of music, and I don't see why you guys have to be paid so much to do it. And, you know, our answer to that is that, well, we operate at the very highest level in our field, and, uh, you know, we need to be compensated accordingly for that. You know, I, I don't really see it as much different from, you know, when people get upset about how much money athletes make. Of course, it's a, a ton of money that athletes can make in their careers. But when you look at it in, in terms of the budgets of these organizations that they're working for, they're actually being compensated pretty well, commensurate with the, the full amount that the, say, football team or basketball team is pulling in. In the Chicago Symphony, anyway, we're in kind of an interesting position because our portion of the overall budget from year to year is no more than a third of the entire budget. They're not breaking the bank by paying us. Yeah. Um, also, you know, uh, I, I would say the, the baseball players probably make a lot more than symphony performers overall, and uh, they still go on strike from time to time. Yes, they do. They also have 
much, much shorter careers than we do. Although I imagine you do, you can be injury prone in, in probably similar, similar yet different ways. Yeah, absolutely. Injuries do occur and we have protections built into our uh, bargaining agreement that puts restrictions on the amount of time and giving time off to people to recover and, uh, it can be very challenging. For instance, up at Ravinia, when we're doing three different concerts a week, it can be very, very tough on the people's fingers and mouths. You know, people have to take care of themselves. Also, I mean, just in terms of conditioning and the everyday conditions of the job, this is a, an anxiety-prone profession, I imagine. I mean, there's an intense amount of competitive pressure that is placed on musicians at this level um, that probably wears on you, I imagine, when you're playing concerts like three times or four times a week. I think it can. It, it can, but I, I have to say, the people who sit on stage in, in this orchestra, and I'm sure it's the same way in all the other ones, you know, we've been doing this for so long, we're very good at it, and uh, I don't think there's a lot of stage fright that happens. You know, this, this is something we've all been doing for many, many years. I mean, for the soloists, the, the people who play solo instruments, the woodwinds and the brass, I'm sure there's anxiety from time to time if there's a big solo or something. But everybody seems to get conditioned to it after a while and always turns in great, great performances. This orchestra is really amazing. Going back to this idea that public funding for the arts is being cut back, I was just thinking that you know musical education is something that suffers. And I think that as sort of an everyday practice or an everyday form of um, entertainment, classical music is, um, in a sense, many people still see it as inaccessible. I was just wondering, you know, as a working musician, where do you see your place in sort of the broader, I guess, like, landscape of our public culture? Um, And do you think more musicians like you should be forming unions so that people are are more aware um, there's greater recognition of, of, you know, you as, as everyday working people? We have a unique place in the in the culture as an institution that everyone can rally around. It doesn't mean that everybody comes to our concerts, but you know, in places where music education in the public schools is held to a high priority and high standard, you tend to see better audiences just because you know, it's just like in sports. Like if someone played basketball as a kid or in high school, they're more likely to be a basketball fan later on in life because they have a like a tactile and intellectual feel for the game. Uh, the same goes with musicians. You know, if somebody took violin lessons or uh, trumpet lessons when they were a kid, they have an appreciation for what goes into it. And so any early exposure to the music is absolutely crucial. So when the cuts are made due to budgetary concerns and whatnot, it's it's an absolute tragedy, and this has been happening in our public schools for years and years, especially in the big cities. I happen to grow up in a town where the, the arts were supported in schools very well. I, I grew up in Boulder, Colorado, and I can tell you a lot of great musicians came out of that public school system, and a lot of people who appreciate music very much did too. I think it's sort of a from the ground up, kind of concern for that. You know, arts funding comes and goes, you know, it's sometimes you're in an administration where the cuts happen and then things will change and you'll you'll see more money being 
uh, used for funding. That, that's always sort of a variable. But as far as unionization of musicians, I I think it, it's important going forward to take a look at the different areas that musicians work in. If there was perhaps a segment of the union that would deal exclusively with people who do more casual engagements or one one-time engagements, things like that, you might be able to have a union that's more responsive to its membership. For instance, we have we have a sub-organization called ICSOM. It's, it's the Organization of Symphony and Opera Musicians. And it's a subgroup of that, you know, we basically lobby to the union for rights and help for symphony orchestras. And uh, it's a very powerful organization, uh, and the union recognizes that it's, you know, it's a big part of, of, what, uh, of the support that they need to give musicians so it's very important musicians can be a little hesitant to band together sometimes but i think if there was the right organization happening it might be happening a little bit better that was robert kassinger of the chicago symphony orchestra you're listening to belabored a descent magazine podcast Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And now it's time for everybody's favorite segment. Arg! I wish I'd written that. I've never read a magazine feature that managed to make me feel quite as trapped in a hell universe as this piece from Gia Tolentino with The New Yorker called Outdoor Voices Blurs the Lines Between Working Out and Everything Else. Outdoor Voices is apparently an athleisure clothing brand. I had somehow never heard of it, despite its apparent ubiquity, but I guess I'm not the target audience, or I'd somehow scrolled past the Instagram ads. The tagline for the piece is, The brand's clothes perfectly suit a cultural moment when improving your lifestyle has become a job that's supposed to be fun. Ugh. As long-time listeners know, I'm against the idea that your job is supposed to be fun, precisely because that mentality encourages your job to encroach on every single part of your life, and brands like this one do more to impose work discipline in our non-work lives. Don't get me wrong, I've got nothing against working out. I do yoga daily or as close to daily as I can manage with my travel schedule, and I love the changes in my body that it's given me. I just don't understand why I'm supposed to spend $80 on leggings to wear in public to telegraph to everyone else in the world that I do yoga or whatever. Yet Outdoor Voices apparently has a hashtag, the banal hashtag doing things, for its adherents, customers, cult members to tell the world or their Instagram followers that they are, I don't know, not lazy? Tolentino writes, quote, The trademark OV look is a racer-back crop top and a matching pair of high-waisted leggings, an outfit designed to shape and flatter the body and to expose it. OV's textured compression fabric is so snug that it borders on disciplinary, and its leggings sculpt the body like Spanx. The clothes photograph beautifully. Somehow they make the wearer look as if she were put on earth to be viewed on Instagram, posing against a forest vista and flamingo-colored spandex and a smile, end quote. Disciplinary clothing. Oi, what would Marx say? She goes on to explain how OV relies on ambassadors who don't get paid, but do get free disciplinary leggings or crop tops, and then a few paid ambassadors too. But really, the whole thing is about a mindset that encourages you to think about your body as another form of work. She writes, quote, I decided that for a month at least, I would adopt the doing things mindset 
which encourages people to enthusiastically pursue any physical activities that they like enough to do regularly, and which suggested that I could be proud of my dog walking in my sullen participation in bar classes. For the next few weeks, I worked out a lot, which put me in a terrific if conflicted mood. 60% of working Americans say they don't have enough time to do the things they want to do, and a high income is the most reliable predictor of leisure time physical activity. Getting a lot of exercise feels like a luxury and an advantage. Exercise has kept my head clear, my mood even, my body predictable, my energy up. It has also helped me compete in a culture of escalating beauty expectations and increasingly boundless work. Am I taking care of myself doing sun salutations in my motivational crop top, or am I running survival drills for life under an advanced capitalist economy? The answer, I'm sure, is both. End quote. And as for the actual workplace at OV, oh, don't you worry. It's hashtag girlboss heaven. Quote, the employees at HQ call themselves Team OV, and they operate on the doing things principle. Haney, that's the boss, is known for instituting jumping jacks breaks during meetings. People go off in small groups to do astrology workshops or volunteer with the ASPCA. The first OV employee with whom I corresponded signed her emails, doing things, Melissa. My visit in February coincided with a tree planting expedition. About 20 of us drove a short distance to a trail that borders Lady Bird Lake, a reservoir on the Colorado River. We gathered around blue buckets and tall shovels as a woman from the Trail Foundation, which OV sponsors, demonstrated how to plant saplings of California buckthorn and te Texas redbud. The saplings would take 15 years to become sizable, she said, and only 30% of them would manage to become trees. Long game, Haney said. She leaned in close to observe the tree planting technique. Then she planted three times as many trees as anyone else. End quote. And if that's not enough, Tolentino continues, the company has an internal app called Hearts and Stars, which asks you to make a note in the app when you engage in an activity, playing pickup basketball, riding your bike, meditating, and assigns you a star if you do it alone, or a heart, which is with more, worth more points, if you do it with a friend. Once the employees have collectively accumulated a certain number of hearts and stars, the office gets a reward. Recently, after reaching an office goal, the staff had a silent disco in which they all put on headphones, turned on their music, and danced. End quote. Yes, my friends, this is my idea of hell. It's lean in for the Instagram generation, the ones, incidentally, who can't even afford to consider the question of baby or job that lean in and its clones consider work-life balance. Instead, work-life balance is turning everything in your life into work and then taking pictures of it to make sure that everybody else knows about it. Gia concludes, quote, I went to a yoga class wearing one of my OV outfits before catching my flight back to New York. I had never been less able to distinguish what was good from what was profitable or my life from my work. It was dark in the studio and the ceiling sparkled like a planetarium. A sign at the back of the room read total human optimization. In a sweet, soft voice, the instructor told us, every part of you that's not active is weighing you down. End quote. Please, God, let capitalism hurry up and implode because shit like this will be the death of me. My pick for this episode is Meritocracy is a Myth Invented by the Rich by Nathan Robinson in The Guardian. The American public this week became captivated by a massive college admissions cheating scandal involving several ultra-wealthy and celebrity families. The federal indictment of a professional college admissions con man who fabulously fabricated Ivy League applications for the offspring of the rich and famous, evoked all the collective anxieties, outrage, and frustration of our subsurface class war, which quietly slithers under the patina of American meritocracy. 
Why is our public imagination so obsessed with elite cheaters? Not because we're so shocked, of course. It's no surprise that the system is kind of rigged. It's the brazenness of the celebrity cheat case, in which elite parents paid humongous fees to manufacture fraudulent resumes. It seems to almost caricature our worst fears. Nathan Robinson argues that the system is constructed to be gamed, though, and the art of deception has been fully commercialized, and maybe that's what we find so shocking. Americans like to think that hard work pays off, but they also believe, in a somewhat contradictory manner, that meritocracy somehow always elevates deserving talent and allows the best to flourish in a system of standardized tests, college admissions applications, job interviews, etc. Neither work nor talent, however, is truly valued in society, unless you've got social status working in your favor. Robinson outlines the brutal methodology used by ringleader William Singer, which lays bare the hidden status quo. Quote, the back door is through institutional advancement, which is 10 times as much money. And I've created this side door, he said. The side door that Singer is referring to is outright crime, literally paying bribes and faking test scores. It's impossible to know how common that is, but there's reason to suspect it's comparatively rare. Why? Because for the most part, the wealthy don't need to pay illegal bribes. They can already pay perfectly legal ones. So there lies the crux of the problem. Most of the cheating that takes place is not really cheating because, you know, it's totally playing by the rules. Beyond this fundamental structural inequity, there is vast inequality in the resources allotted to different types of schools, ranging from exclusive private boarding academies to dilapidated public schools where even desks are scarce, let alone updated textbooks. And still, the unlevel playing field goes even further back, according to Robinson. Quote, even if we equalize public school funding and abolish private schools, some children would be far more equal than others. Two and a half million children in the United States go through homelessness every year in this country. The chaotic living situation that comes with poverty makes it much, much harder to succeed. This means that even those who go through Singer's, quote, front door have not quote, gotten in on their own. They've gotten in partly because they've had the good fortune to have a home life conducive to their success. While the essay does not deal directly with the idea of work, it does elucidate the hollow nature of meritocracy with respect to labor. It ties into the country's ongoing struggle surrounding labor rights and job opportunity because the chief line of demarcation in our class hierarchy and a key threshold for access to coveted job markets remains education or rather, the degree one has attached to their name. Simply by winning or stealing that poker chip of the right diploma, the right connections from college, we get to wildly inflate our net value in the wider economic marketplace. With all the coveted access to lucrative careers, upward mobility, and high salaries that that brings. The secret to getting into a top college comes down to simple math, explains Robinson. Quote, wealth always confers greater capacity to give your children the edge over other people's children. If we wanted anything resembling a meritocracy, we would probably have to start by instituting full egalitarian communism. Unquote. Oh, if only it were that simple. Today, we know that we're all reduced to our most basic and primeval elements in the savage competition for a coveted job or a top-tier college. Even the liberals and progressives among us fall prey to this when it comes to our own kids. But the only way to get out of this rat race seems to be just to stop playing the game. And yet, how many of us are willing to relinquish our desire for validation, for a taste of that patina of achievement in a world where merit rules? 
well, that is the literal definition of meritocracy anyway, as opposed to, say, plutocracy, kleptocracy, or technocracy. Yet we see how meritocracy is merely a fig leaf for other, more conventional power dynamics, where power tends to accrue to those willing and able to exploit and abuse it. You might call that a kind of autocracy. One thing that meritocracy is not, of course, is democracy. And maybe that kind of power structure, the one where people rule, not some supposedly objective value system that has been imposed from on high by our betters, is a system that our education system should really serve. True, we'd have less to compete for, fewer credentials and scores and certificates to chase after, but we'd gain in turn something truly meritorious. We gain the value of fairness, of a more just, equal, and harmonious society for all of us to share. And that's it for this episode of Belabored. Tune in for a new edition in another two weeks. Thanks to Natasha for making us sound good. And you can check out all of our archives and a lot of other great Descent content at descentmagazine.org. There you can become a sustaining member of Belabored and Descent Magazine and get a bunch of cool swag to go with it. And please let us know on social media if you have any labor actions you're partaking in, any unions you're forming, any campaigns you're working on, anything else related to the working world, any gripes, grudges, and grumbles you have against your boss. Let us know by email at belabored at descentmagazine.org or you can contact us on Twitter at hashtag belabored. Over and out. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag Belabored.